0: Hey guys, before we get into today's podcast, I just have been editing the intro and noticed that I'm using a new mic stand today. And my god, whatever it is, you can hear it in the background shaking the mic. And I hope that's not too annoying as I tell a really fun story. But apologies about that. won't happen again. Will I re-record it for you? Sorry, can't do that. I just can't. It's the My First Gig Podcast. Whoa, sharing stories of first gigs and shows. How are we doing? Welcome to another edition of my first gig with me, Dwayne Dugan. That's me. Oh yeah, you're listening to me, Dwayne Dugan. We are here on Acast, powered by the beautiful Acast, or wherever you're getting your podcast. It should be Acast, though. If you have a podcast, you should go to Acast, too, and use Acast Plus to make your podcast all the more better. Happy Wednesday, or happy Monday or Tuesday, If you're one of the beautiful babies who subscribe on Patreon to get an early, ad-free and extended, that's right. And guess what, guys, this week? Oh yeah, guys, this week. Oh, when I said this week, I meant this week. I am finally launching the series of... Bonus episodes exclusively only on the Patreon, featuring the stars of the Irish comedy scene, and we're going to be kicking off this week with the fantastic Jim Elliott. Recorded with Jim Elliott last week before a gig at Comedy Unshot in Dublin. Jim, yeah, Jim's great comedian, um, from Washington DC, my friend, and about uh, being in Ireland and rocking the comedy scene for the last. Ten plus years, so look out for that Patreon.com for slash my first gig pod, or if you're just listening here on the regular feed, I don't care. You could be my beautiful babies, or you could be my regular ragamuffins. And if you're one of my regular ragamuffins, you're welcome as well. You know, less so, but a little bit. Uh, enjoy this, and I hope you, due to your lack of financial payment, go to my first gig pod across social media. Give it a little follow, give it a little share, give it a little like, put it up on your story you know, why don't you do that uh, last week, I hope you enjoyed last week with Brett Goldstein a lot of good feedback for that, everyone's like how the hell did you get Brett Goldstein, it's like yeah got him before he was famous, Wait till he was afterwards so there's about 4,000 episodes I've recorded that I haven't put out and I'm just hoping that they all go on to win Emmys and Grammys and Oscars and Tonys and all the other stuff, so oh, if you've been interviewed but you haven't put it out there's a good chance I think you're going to be famous Or else the interview is shit. And that's a specific uh, to just one person. There's only one shit interview we've ever done. And uh, it was with a shitty person. Oh, look at this. Shots fired. And uh, halfway through the interview, I was like, Oh, I'm never putting this out. I don't like this guy. But he's out there, and he would only love. Or, Or they. Not revealing that it's a man. But it's definitely a man. Anyway, hope you enjoyed... Last week's episode with Brett Goldstein, I, I I really enjoyed it. Great to salvage that, especially you know with the the, the audio issues surrounding uh, where we were recording. But thankfully, there was it today. Because if I tried to edit that with my two thousand and nineteen brain, it would have been a lot worse. So you know, it was worth the wait. And today, today's guest is Brody Snook. This is the final episode from the Patty Power Comedy Festival series that we recorded, and as is mentioned. We talk about the Spice Girls again. If you've listened to the episodes with Lara Bites and Mary Beth Brown, the Spice Girls come up, and yet it does here today, all in the space of 24 hours. So guys, Girl Power, living strong in 2022. It's uh, it's it was, This was a funny chat. I had recorded... I've recorded interviews with people over for that festival over the years, and any time I've gone to the hotel, it's been the one hotel. Even outside of the festival, if the same promotion company's Aiken, Aiken Promotions book comedians they generally in this hotel so I'd recorded with Flo and Joan the day before in the hotel and I said that's a perfect little room I'll do that again so I'm texting Brody going hey we'll meet here downstairs she's like right on my way and she's like uh, can't find it I'm like it's just down the steps and then you'll see this door she's like I'm going down the steps I don't see any doors turns out she's in a different hotel and I'm there running around the hotel all set up for an interview and that's how professional I am. I'm like, hey, I'm ready. And she's like, you're not even in the building. So thankfully, I was able to run over and do it in the basement of her hotel, which didn't have a nice little room. It had a very loud uh, vending machine. But uh, thankfully, you can't hear the vending machine in the background. But we were we were very aware of it. And I think we make a few comments on it. But uh, yeah, thanks to Brody for her time. Great to get her story because she spent the last couple of years in the UK we talk about how she's supported Ardal Hannan on his UK tour, uh, you know, runs at the Soho Theatre in the Edinburgh Fringe, and then the pandemic. I'm not sure if it forced her back to uh, Australia. We talk about it, but uh, it, it led her back to Australia, and she's still there now. You know, so it uh, it might be a chat that wouldn't get to happen otherwise. So great to get that done, and here we are. Yeah, if this is the ninth of November, if you're listening on the Wednesday, if you're listening later in the week then the 10th of November is the 8th anniversary of Cherry Comedy, which is the comedy club I run in Dublin, and I thought I'd tell a little story about Cherry Comedy, you know, even though that's kind of a little cheat sheet into my first gig, but I've no plans to record my story just yet, but yeah, Cherry Comedy over the years, its um it started in DCU, Dublin City University, and I remember... It was me and a few friends, uh, Niall Farrell and David Atkinson. We talked about comedy for a while and we knew the people in the SU and we kept telling them to book more comedy. And I think one of them made a kind of a joking remark saying, put on your own then. Like we've, we spent our budget on bands and everything else for the year. And then David had this idea and I was just like, yeah, I don't know. Um, just like, or I think I said, yeah, but I was like, I'm never actually going to discuss this with you. And we went one night to the Dublin Comedy Improv in the International Bar, and we watched it, we had fun. I remember um, I remember Joe Rooney was there, I remember Sharon Mannion was there, and a few of the other regulars. And we went for, this is how me and David always talk about it, we went and shared a six McNugget meal. Which, I d- dispute that, I don't like to share things, especially not a six-nugget meal, so... He says we share that and a, and a sweet and sour dip, which is correct, on Grafton Street in Dublin. And he said, man, we should do this. And I'm like, yeah, man, for sure we should We should do comedy, man. Yeah, we've never done it before, but let's just do it. And I'm just going, yeah, I'm just saying this. I actually have no, no intent to follow up on any of this. Like, yeah, it'd be cool, but I've got pizza to eat at home after my McDonald's i don't know i feel like all i did in college was drink beer in the college and then go home and eat pizza so that's there was probably leftovers and then all of a sudden and he's like he's booked a room where uh, uh, some societies hold events he's got a date and he's recruiting comedians quote unquote which are all students all of which have never done comedy before bar Niall, and Niall had done maybe two gigs and I think one of them was in the college as like, it was meant to be a joke kind of a thing and then another one was in town where I think he got very drunk and like didn't even finish his punchlines um, you know, so that was the most experience of the three of us Uh so, you know, we didn't have any idea what's going on, Like I'll give David credit for all of that because, you know as I said, I had no, idea, no intention of falling up with it. In fact, the day of the gig, I nearly pulled out. I had a load of stuff written and I scrapped it all and rewrote the set last minute and performed it after a lot of beers because I was so nervous. And it was weird. It was like... It wasn't part of a society. DCU's a very society-driven college, at least in the circles that we were... Um, we were surrounded by the societies and society events. And we weren't part of a society, but yet over 100 people showed up. And all we had was a couple of posters and like our social media poll, which would have been people we were friends with. And over 100 people showed up. So we did another one. And then we did another one. And it got so popular that I think by number four or five, we did a show with entirely new people who, like, like we were entirely new, but as in, like, we picked 15 new people who had never done it before. And we had this roster of so many people in our college doing stand up comedy. Like it was mad. Like in, in a six month period, there was probably maybe thirty, thirty five students doing stand up comedy. And I think even our fourth show had or fifth show, one of them. We had three hundred plus people there. It was insane. And I remember I remember we we had just graduated and we're all kind of regretting that we started this you know, November on our final year. And we would just do kind of monthly shows. So we only had like six shows. I we like, imagine we'd done this in first year. And a friend of ours would gig in a pub called Doyle's in town. And he says, if you do up a proposal on running comedy nights, I'll give it to the guy who runs the place. Let's see if you can keep the night going. And it was... Technically, Cherry Comedy then, but because it was fifteen students trying out comedy for the first time ever, it was the original title of Cherry Comedy is Pop the Cherry Comedy, but we just shortened it to Cherry Comedy after a while. But in fact, uh, here's just Pop the Cherry is just what it became known as, and it annoys me when comedians who did it back in the days so look up and go, oh, "I was doing Pop the Cherry," it's like, "No, it's just Cherry. Just call it Cherry, not Pop the Cherry." But let's get away from the weird sexual connotations that let's not get into that okay and I misread the name of the event so Dave had named the event Pop Your Comedy Cherry and he asked me to do a poster and I just did a poster and I just did Pop The Cherry Comedy and at that point it's like ah well I'm not redoing this because was kind of this weird intricate design with the name it's like, I'm not not moving everything about and changing the shapes and all this. So, then the next one, I I took charge of the next one. Like, basically, whatever was on Facebook was official, you know, back in in, in those days. So, I set up the event as a Facebook event and called it Pop the Cherry Comedy 2.0 for the second event. So, then that name just stuck. But, when I, yeah, when I look back, it's like the original title was actually uh, different. And when we joined Whelan's, well, no, I'm skipping ahead. So, we did, we did the Doyle show. Well, we did the Doyle's proposal. David and Niall came up to my house and we had a few beers and ordered some pizzas, continuing our time-honoured college tradition. And we all fell asleep in the sitting room. I had a bedroom upstairs, but we all woke up in the sitting room the next day realising we didn't have a proposal done. And I'm not sure if it was that morning. In my head, the TV show version, it was that morning when Niall woke up. He had an email. but well, It might have been a day or two later. He had an email from... A, a a girl who was previously DCU who I don't think you knew too well but had crossed paths with once or twice in DCU and they were friends on Facebook and she just saw all the events and the amount of people we had and I think she was new enough in the Mercantile group in Dublin and you know I don't know if they asked her to pitch things or people to pitch things or she just wanted to be proactive but she connected them and goes hey, because Whelan, Wheelan's themselves were looking for younger audiences trying to get a bit more of a college crowd in on some of the quieter nights like a Monday or Tuesday and she said well there's this college group running comedy events and we went in for a meeting and it was just easy they were just like yeah here's a date let's let's do it let's 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 try out a comedy date and I remember actually on that we we went into him and we said um it was Dave and Whelans who I still work with today and I remember we said to him like we don't like the name Pop the Cherry Comedy we don't like it's you know, what, what what it stands for. It was, it was, it was a, a one-time joke for the first-time event, but we don't want to keep that as our brand. And so we want to call it The Comedy Bath. Now, long story short, inside jokes and all, there was something to do with Nile in the bath. And I don't even remember what it was exactly, but I remember long-term jokes of something, something in the bath. And we wanted to call it The Comedy Bath. And our slogan would be, hey, come down to Whelan's and take a dip or a splash in the bath which I didn't hate, and I had a logo drawn up of like a laughing emoji jumping into a bath or with a towel or something like that. And he went, no, you're keeping the name. I was like, okay, never mind. We'll do what you say. And I was like, two years later, once we were there for a while and had established ourselves, I wrote this huge, huge email explaining the reasons why I'd like to change the name to just Cherry Comedy, keep the brand, you know, have its own brand and it's not... No, we need to look at the name and assume something or to get an idea about it. And I think I got, like, two words back which would be like, yeah, cool. So, like, I think at that point, they just wanted the established comedy or the established college group. So they didn't want to alter anything. But once it was established, they, they didn't care if we call ourselves, you know, John Bon Jovi's co- Comedy Extravaganza, which is a pretty cool name. And... Uh, yeah, we were we weren't sure how the first one would go. We knew that largely the audience would be people either still in DCU or previously from DCU who had, who had started to come to the events because the events got a lot of steam uh, over the over the six that we did in the college. And we're booked upstairs in Wheelands, and we're setting up during the day. We'd done some the lads, especially uh, when they were involved in the group, would work in, in viral videos and. Marketing campaigns and such like that. So there was a lot of like visual online content promoting the shows. And so I think there was a bit of a buzz, and it was maybe about two or three o'clock in the day. And they just said to us, We're moving you to the big room. And we're like, What? It was like, We thought we would fill like maybe 60 people upstairs if we could. I think we had 250 people come in Whelan's packed. I don't think anyone had ever seen anything like that before from a new group. I feel as if there was a little bit of hostility in the Dublin comedy scene. Um, not hostility, but I, I, uh, people I've talked to over the years is, as, we got, as we got became part of the clan were like, oh yeah, everyone's like, don't trust those college boys or they don't know what they're at. That's not proper stand-up and stuff. So um, yeah, it's just funny looking back now. And we did end up doing three of those shows, a summer series in uh, over the summer. Uh, which is the best time to do a summer series in the main room in Whelan's and after that it was just going so well we said right let's go weekly and it was September 2015 we went weekly and I think by maybe six weeks of the regular calendar year like never taking out Christmas and stuff only six weeks we've missed one was for the Euros in uh, 2016 Ireland were playing their first game or the second game I think it was so we skipped that one was because the the building was under renovations. I think one show was pulled. Not to sound bitter, I wasn't there, and I was pulled. And I, I, I love the fact that Cherry had never pulled a show, but uh, I trust those who were there and did. But I'm still like, oh god damn, I wish I was there. And um, yeah, I think maybe three hundred and fifty shows in and something like that. And it's yeah, it's real fun. And you know, so it's tomorrow. If you're listening to this on the Wednesday, that is the 8th anniversary, but as I'm recording this, it's Sunday the 6th, and tomorrow is the 8th birthday, and it's really fun, and we got Barry Murphy on. So what I love about that as well is Barry, because it was me, Niall, and David who left DCU and started the comedy club that summer, 25 years previous, or maybe 27 years previous, something like that. Barry Murphy, along with Ard Lohannan and Kevin Gildee, left NIHE Dublin, National Institute of Higher Education, or something like that, I think it stands for. But that became DCU around that time, actually. And they started the comedy club that summer. And I always liked the correlation between those two. And yeah, so Barry, being on the birthday shows, is, is very fun. You know, we started off as a DCU comedy group. We've got the Most original DCU comedian in Barry Murphy, uh, Richie Breeze on the show. Richie, obviously, such an integral part of Cherry over the years, um, and and still today, through he's been you know such a helpful, helpful, uh, hand in many ways. And then Fiona Frawley, who uh, c- came on board, I don't know, maybe maybe a year or two years into it, and just have seen her rise. You know, obviously I'm biased. Fiona is uh how we say uh my bitch Um I wish I didn't say that. It's recording video, I'm not gonna edit video, so I can't even edit that. So I'm very sorry Fiona, as you're the only person of the people I'm mentioning who are actually listening to this. I'm sorry. Um but or if you're not listening to this, that's actually a bonus, even though it would be bittersweet that I'm losing uh, my most trusted listener. Um but Fiona over the last year has had such a brilliant rise uh, always was a great host but has become such a natural host at Cherry over the over the last year, and that just so happens to coincide with her out of Cherry rise from gigging and Vicker Street every other weekend supporting Alexa, Tommy Teard and Alan Carr, Mark Marin in Sterling, Joanne McNally, Doug Stanhope and many more. Uh, so obviously if she wasn't the host of Cherry she would have had a headline slot by now, celebrating the success that she's had. So, I um, think it's a perfect occasion for her to headline tomorrow, and I'm very excited by it. So, that's the little little roundup of Cherry Comedy. This has gone on a little bit long, and the interview itself is a little bit long, so let's just get into it. I won't spend too much time afterwards, uh, do the, save the plugs afterwards, and also the reveal of next week's guest. So, without further ado, you've listened to me ramble long enough, we're going to get into my first gig... Brody Snook.
1: Got here Wednesday. You Um, spent your birthday here? I did, yeah. I flew over from Montreal on the uh, red eye on whatever it was, Tuesday or Wednesday. Who knows with a red eye flight? Um, Yeah, it's been great to be here. I've been here numerous times before, but this is the first time for work.
0: Perfect. Was it was it just for laughs in Montreal?
1: Uh I was there as they were setting it all up, but that wasn't the reason I was there. I was sort of uh, just done a bit of a road trip through the States oh, and nice. ended up Montreal and then uh yeah, it made made sense to fly direct to Dublin. So um but yeah, I was watching them set it all up like, you know. And going, oh, I would love to <laughs> not leave and be a big I'm name and do this festival. Yeah, exactly. Ten years' time, fingers crossed. Um, but, yeah, it looked absolutely awesome. And I was with a friend who was uh, about to open their show there. So, yeah, it was all very exciting. Well, but fun. equally exciting to fly to Dublin and do the Paddy Power Festival.
0: Yeah. And, uh, what, what did you get up to for your, for your birthday? Did you do anything special over here?
1: Um, I sort of just, I was a bit jet lagged and I was a little bit, you know, I've been traveling for a little bit now and, and on the road. So I didn't feel pressure to be like, I must have the best day ever. Also, I'm traveling by myself, which is my favorite company, to be honest. So, um, I sort of just, you know, as, I don't know if this is an Australian thing or not, but dilly-dallied. Do you say dilly-dallied in this country?
0: Just putty, putty about Yeah, that, yeah. exactly. Just lots Part of, of it, lots
1: of birthday dilly-dallying, walking around, having a good look at Dublin and the weather was beautiful. So that was cool. And, uh, yeah, just felt happy to not be behind the ironclad borders of Australia for the first time in two years.
0: Also, you spent lockdown back there.
1: I did, yeah, yeah. So I flew back to Australia at the beginning of 2020 for the festival season. And then, you know, we all know what happened at the beginning of 2020. So um, I did become stuck there after living in London for 11 years. So my entire life was on the other side of the world. Wow. And uh, got stuck in my childhood bedroom at my mum's house at the age of 29. I
0: did the exact same thing. It was fantastic. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. So many of us did, you know. And I think, uh, in a lot of ways, I felt very lucky. Obviously, because um, you know, what a place to be stuck—beautiful Western Australia, where um, we'd sealed ourselves off from the rest of the world, so we were all living relatively normally. Whatever that means. Um, so yeah, but it was it was difficult to be separated from the life I'd lived for, for yeah. the last eleven years.
0: So has that disrupted us full time now? Like you're not you're not based in the UK now anymore.
1: Uh, I'm sort of not based anywhere, which yeah. uh, is good. I don't really have plans to set up. Uh, anywhere in the next, you know, 6 to 12 months. It's mainly just following the work now, which that's, is great. That's a good place to be. Really yeah. good place to be, you know, living out of the suitcase, which is what I really missed when I couldn't go anywhere. So.
0: And uh, we were talking before about how pre-all that, you were supporting Erdogan on mm. his UK tour. Yes. Did he give you any hints about Ireland, about Dublin, that you've come to realize over here
1: um i'm trying to think i mean we talked a lot about you know our respective backgrounds and things like that when you you're on the road and you're sharing car stories and things like that um yeah nothing that i can think in particular more just um you know i think i probably realized along the way the further we got into the tour what a a big star idol is in this country and you know i grew up with father ted too absolutely loved it and a lot of those sort of things. But, um, you know, you would have uh, someone waiting outside the theatre from three in the afternoon with, you know, some kind of merch and things like that, just absolutely all bananas. So I was sort of like, oh, yeah, this guy's a pretty big deal, I think.
0: Yeah, and I think it was his first tour in the best part of a decade.
1: I think so too, yeah, by the sounds of him. A... There's
0: a lot of people then who like grew up, mm. who are now of an age that like he he almost departed doing, you know, a lot of telly work and stuff like that when people are of an age, then to go to shows. So there's this whole new generation now. Mm, this is kind of it. Around, but, and then obviously the uh, the previous crew as well. So it's, That's um, it. It
1: was nice to sort of have a, you know, a multi-layered audience for most of those shows as well. You know, obviously you had your, your Death in Paradise fans and then you had, you know... Era, your 90s kind of heads and things like that, um, you know, big sitcom fans. And, yeah, it was really cool. It was uh, easily the best if not one of the best jobs I've ever had. I think, you know, tour support is, um, you know, it's a really sweet gig. You know, you get out, you do 25 minutes, albeit to someone else's audience and it might be tougher some nights than other nights to have to, you know, win them over and things. Um, certainly in, in different parts of the UK that we went to, we'd both sort of come off and go, oof, that was a rough <laughs> one, you know. But I felt like, uh, if I had a rough one, uh, then, you know, we sort of both had a rough one. So it wasn't me going out, dying on my ass and then not warming the crowd up. We both kind of, you know, would concede at the end of a particular show that it was, you know, they were a bit more wooden for both of us. So sure. that wasn't too bad. Didn't make me feel like I was failing at my job too hard. So <laughs> yeah.
0: I'd say, yeah, he's a, he, I'd say he's a, He's a very supportive person, and yeah, so it's like a good person to have in those moments.
1: Yeah, I felt very, very lucky to um, to be invited to do all three legs of that that English tour. So um, yeah, easily one of the best jobs I've ever had.
0: Now, before we go right back and talk about your first gig, if I ask you what your first memory of comedy is, what comes to mind for you?
1: First memory of comedy, so in Australia we have a channel called UK TV um, and, you know, it's mostly uh, a lot of older things, um, Faulty Towers yep. and um, Are You Being Served, you know, all those sort of things that, you know, your parents grew up with. Um, and I suppose what I didn't realise at the time, but I just used to sit in front of those just like, you know, gog-eyed, just, you know, enjoying... Um, you know, all the sort of offbeat kind of, you know, really dry kind of things that we don't really have or didn't really have in Australian comedy. It's, you know, we don't have a lot of, um, you know, kind of old like institution worthy television yeah. shows like that, like Faulty Towers and stuff. Um, so I think I really loved those. And I, at the time was pretty young and didn't realize like that they were old, old television shows either. So from there, it kind of just my comedy education kind of started and it was all English. You know, I then ended up just, you know, becoming obsessed with like the young ones and bottom and then, you know, into things like the Mighty Boosh and it was just really all, you know, kind of television shows. So, it wasn't particularly stand up, um, in the early days. Like when I was a kid, it was, it was, you know, like a television kind of education, I suppose. Um, and then, you know, I would just, you know, I grew up in the sticks, like in Australia, in Western Australia. So, you know, we had like three TV channels and, you know, no one would ever come to our town when they were touring and things like that. So whenever there was any opportunity to, to stay up late and watch obscure comedy on SBS or something like that, I would just consume as much as I kind of could. So I guess it kind of began there. And then, um, yeah, I moved to London at the age of 18 and kind of went, oh, there's a lot of amazing stuff to see and do and experience here, like culturally. And um, I think, yeah, in a lot of ways, my comedy education kind of started there as well with live stuff.
0: Would there be a lot of British culture in? Australia, or is it on those like specialty channels that are yeah, kind of
1: like hidden a bit? It's a bit of both, really. I feel like, as far as mainstream, uh, you know, broadcasting goes, it's more American than anything. Ah, oh, the vending machines finally <laughs> stopped humming. Um, so yeah, we sort of we're we're more americanized um than anything I suppose um you know even our local stuff like there there's just so much that doesn't make it to production even though it's absolutely incredible but mm. you know it's a shame that you know i don't know i'm I'm a real um grump when it comes to things like reality television getting yeah. a lot of airtime you know as opposed to genuinely good art you know
0: pretty much the same here I think yeah it's like yeah, we go like we so we go across to the UK for a lot of that kind of stuff, mm. um, and yeah, Irish stuff. If it falls through the cracks, it's so few and far between that I don't think anybody even gives it a chance. Then, which is, which is a bit of a shame. But so growing up and watching all of these shows, does this like lead to the UK being your destination at eighteen? Is that part of it or how did you come to come to the UK then?
1: Yeah, I would say there was a, a heavy influence of what I was consuming and I mean that teamed with, you know, growing up on a diet of the Spice Girls purely. Um, they come up a lot, was, a lot this weekend. Oh, have they really?
0: This, I've done, I don't know how many of these I've done, but this is the third, they've never come up before.
1: Isn't that interesting? And this is the third time they've come up this weekend. I love weekend. that, a renaissance.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All, all of us regretting that we didn't go to the stadium tour a few yes, years
1: ago. Yes, absolutely. I would back have liked it, that. I think, oh, I, I
0: Really should, should have, have
1: gone. Belted five hundred quid off for a ticket. <laughs> um, yeah, so I feel like I, you know, everything incrementally over my childhood became about. You know, I had like Union Jack stuck on my wall and things like that. You know, I'd be cutting things out of various magazines and, and all that. You'd have that to keep that
0: quiet time. here. I don't mention yeah. that the shows tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, it's good that I'm leaving town immediately after <laughs> the, the show this evening. The planes outside the venue. I mean, it probably looked very UKIP-y in, uh, in hindsight, my childhood bedroom. But I was I was just – I think it was that classic obsession with leaving a small town and going to a big city and, and you know, having a new life and all those sort of things and, and the excitement surrounding that. And, Ooh, I can go and, you know, become something and all those clichés you see in a t- terrible shitty film
0: but that's like you know leaving a small town going to the big city is one thing mm. going around the world is <laughs> it's a very different thing it uh, is you're on your own
1: yes yeah wow. yeah yeah and
0: like just like what was the destination or was it just to go somewhere and then
1: um i think it was just you know initially the plan was just to leave um and you know i'd never really been anywhere else i'd never lived in a city before um it was very um one-way ticket and let's let's be off and let's do this um how's that sound for you um so yeah it was all initially about leaving and then when i you know just arrived in this new place at the age of 18 very very green about life and very you know naive about most things um i sort of came into my own a lot you know made a lot of you know Errors in judgment along the way, as we all do when we're kind of becoming adults. But yeah, it was really it sort of snapped me into this independent adulthood, and it made me sort of try a bunch of new things. You know, like in my early twenties, I was like interning for magazines and doing community radio and stuff like that, and that all indirectly or directly led me to trying stand up.
0: And before we get into that, we were speaking about comedy Mm. and like a lot of the TV shows. When do you seem to remember kind of discovering? either stand-up or, like, live performance comedy or any early memories of it?
1: Um, I feel like I was always the kid who faked a stomach ache for every assembly and every, like, sports carnival and anything that I had to be visible in front of other people for. You know, I always had that really big performance anxiety. Um, Even, you know, like show and tell was an absolute nightmare um so the fact that I've grown up and moved to the other side of the world in stand-up comedy is my job is not really in harmony with the kid that I grew up being but um so yeah like sort of first ever live performance I think well I used to um keep an eye out for touring uh comics that would come to basically as close as they would come to my hometown, which was, you know, a couple of towns away um, when they were were touring regionally. So, you know, I'd always be looking in the local paper for stuff like that and then I'd coerce my mum to like drive me to that town and, you know, drop me off at the show while she would like go to the movies and watch (laughs) watch a film while I was, you know, in there at the age of 16 um, having snuck a warm beer in in my backpack and, you know, just – enjoying the show whoever it was you know I mean we've got some really iconic Australian comedians that I was lucky enough to to see in that capacity you know um, like Will Anderson and Judith Lucy and we were just sort of sitting there and being really enamored with the whole thing and probably never daring to think that I could ever do anything like yeah. that but really just enjoying the experience and how clever it all was and how smooth it all seemed and you know I was definitely of the mind that they were making it up as they went along and all those kind of misconceptions that people have about comedy. Um, So yeah, that was probably my first real experience was when I started, um, yeah, begging my mum to drive me to three towns away so I could watch some filthy comedy (laughs) at a pub or whatever.
0: So you were actually uh, seeking it out and going to it. Mm. It was a a thing you were... It was a big interest, yeah,
1: and that came from you know the the staying up late and watching the um the low budget panel shows and things like that yeah. that you know were making it to um to terrible time slots on uh, you know SBS and ABC and things like that. So then you know you'd see someone on there and that would stick in your brain and what they said would stick in your brain and you'd find out that they were touring. And then, you know, I was – it just felt like there wasn't a lot of information around and I think that's because it was, you know, and I'm talking like it's the 60s. It was literally like the early 2000s or the mid-2000s or whatever, but it was, um, you know, being regional and, and rural and a, a country kind of place, like they're just, you know, there wasn't this plethora of, you know, um, stuff around so I kind of was taking it where I could get it.
0: But that's – like even – Even Dublin here, right, so, like, everything's going on, but you don't, like, it's, unless you're seeking it out, Mm. it'll forever be invisible. It'll bypass you,
1: yeah, Yeah. absolutely.
0: So, seeking it out from, like, your teenage years, but, you know, having no bits, there's no, like, show-off in you when you're in school and stuff like that, it's very much shy in a way.
1: Yeah, for sure. So um when so I started this is it. So this. I go, make make it make sense. Um so when I started comedy, uh people that knew me and knew my family and things like that would um would always go, Oh, I could imagine your brother doing it but never you. You know you're so quiet and I've got an older brother who's uh a bit of an exhibitionist you know he's he's an extrovert I'm uh, I'm an introvert sort of thing and I'm like the quiet one in a loud family um so that's really interesting that when I did start performing um everyone sort of went oh that's you know if it was going to be anyone it wouldn't have been you sort of thing so that was kind of interesting um I think does that answer the question the slightest?
0: Well, I think that, that definitely fits the profile. Mm. Like now, now, like when you start to meet other people, it's like, oh, <laughs> we're all like this. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, it's always, well, uh, nine times out of ten, I think it's, yes, yeah, the, the quieter ones, the shyer ones. Yeah, yeah. But then, I don't know, something unlocks and so it's like, oh, God. Let's-
1: That's it. And I think it takes a lot for you to get to that stage. Um to the literal stage you know but i i've just always been an observer without sounding like a massive creep i always you know i'll always just be listening and watching and thinking and you're never kind of off the clock i think and i was a kid like that you know you'd sort of be the quiet one in the room or whatever but you're always kind of observing what other people are doing and you know and sort of um it's
0: it's that trait and kind of that i was gonna say brain skills brain skills and yeah brain skill. uh probably you know you, you can lean on a lot now. That's what, that's yeah. you know, probably, probably benefits, you know. Absolutely, yeah. Having, having it always turned on.
1: Yeah, and you sort of just, um, I don't know, I pick, when people ask you how you write your jokes and things like that, like for me I don't really have a a format apart from I will be doing something, like yeah. living my life, having an experience, walking somewhere, seeing something, overhearing a, a conversation, and it'll be a phone note situation where I'll go, oh, wouldn't it be funny to to liken that to – um you know like I literally had one the other day I went to lean back in a stool you know when you do that and you the fucking world falls away from you and you're like I'm gonna die why am I gonna die oh I'm because I'm leaning back in a backless chair like I just wrote that in my phone and went oh that bit that I've got about this I could liken to trying to lean back in a stool okay cool that's another part of a joke that already exists it's just it's a constant um process of paying attention I think
0: yeah and then of course then the ones that they're so good that you don't need to write them in your phone notes because you're not going to forget this.
1: Yeah. Oh, my God. I did that to myself a couple of days ago. I went, oh, geez. And I, what I do is um, if I want to remember something, this is a bad visual for a podcast, but um, I just cross my fingers. And if I'm like out walking and I don't have my phone or a notebook or whatever, I've got the idea in my head. I've crossed my fingers and then I get to wherever I'm getting to and I'm like, okay these crossed fingers i know that that's that idea that i had i uncross them i write it down um that,
0: that's i like yeah I, yeah that I, is something it's yeah. a small
1: thing and i think it's even i mean it came from um funnily enough being the quiet one in you know like group conversations and stuff because you think oh, i'd really like to to say this but everyone's firing off at the same time and You know, for me, I'm like, it's like getting into a jump rope situation. I'm like, when's my time? You know, Um, so I just cross my fingers and go, okay, when there's a gap in the conversation, I will raise my little voice and make my (laughs) point. Um, So that's, it's funny that that's where that comes from. Speaking of being um, a bit of an introvert. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
0: Uh. We see that again. Yeah, It's not just the always listening and being aware. It's mm. little, little tactics at work. Mm. So you're now, you're in London. Or is it London you go to? Yes and you're trying out different things radio interning is it part of this trying things that somehow begins this path to getting up on the stage
1: yeah absolutely so when i was 19 i was uh, working for a record label i'd always thought that music was what i wanted to do um it was always something i think that came from that that education of um everything english all the time you know that i then discovered you know um classic English music not classical music by the way but like classic rock and things like that that um, you know I didn't kind of grow up with so I became very obsessed with English music as well British rock and and whatnot um, so I then always thought that music would be the path so I was working um, in synchronization I suppose you could say with this record label and um, I did that for years and then kind of went I don't think this turns me on in the way that I thought it was going to, you know. So it was good, really good to find that out because I'd had this long-held notion that I was going to work in the music industry. Yeah. And then um, tried it and then went, okay, this isn't it. And then um, I was interning at uh, FHM magazine, of all things, uh, for a little while as well, um, thinking that, okay, it might be journalism or, you know, um, and then I did that for a bit. Turned out it wasn't that. And then did community radio. Really enjoyed that. At, at some point I would love to, to you know, get into, well, I think you have to get invited for those big jobs, don't you? I was going to say, at some point I'd like to dabble in radio. They're like, yeah, they're very coveted positions, Brody. Um what, what, what
0: was your position in community
1: radio i mean it was sort of when you um get into something like that you do everything really yeah. so you you know you're writing and you're producing and you're interviewing and you know some points it would just be me doing a like a traffic update <laughs> you know things like that
0: but so now you are you are writing and you are at least yeah
1: and i'm behind yeah. a mic in output, a way yeah. you know sort of um that sort of thing and i mean again super green very young no idea what i was doing um probably just trying to get into some kind of vocation without formal study I think was what I was doing because I was still traveling and doing bar work and having you know an absolute whale of a time but I also had this thing where I'm like I've got passions and I've got creativity and I really want to be on a trajectory in a path but I still want to be having this great time on the side that I was having you know 21 22 23 um and beyond obviously and then, yes, I think I was 22 when I did my first ever stand-up gig.
0: So how, how do we get there? How, how does that come about? Is it recommended? Are you so, going to shows?
1: yes, after, um, well, what had I been in the UK for, for six years or something at that point, I um, I was actually home in Australia for like a month for Christmas. Um, and on the radio I heard of these stand-up comedy competition heats, uh, for a competition called Rule Comedy, which is basically – it's a national competition in Australia and it is effectively our version of So You Think You Funny. Right. Um, so they're having these heats in Perth, which is my nearest capital city in Western Australia, and it coincided with my month home. And I just sort of had this moment where I was like driving and I was like, why wouldn't I do this? Um, So I entered, got a slot and basically then for the next week, um, you know, effectively I, um, you know, I wrote a five-minute set, whatever was in it, I daren't think about because it would have been absolutely horrific um, and probably very cringeworthy but – and then I just sort of like – kind of practiced in my bedroom just like yeah. you know kind of walked laps and just and learned to verbatim and you know and wrote in pauses and things like that i basically wrote myself a little script um and then the the heat came about it was at a pub um in perth and uh you know they do like those competitions have like 15 comics on the bill and everyone brings you know 10 friends and it's a very it was a very supportive kind of gig you know those from memory you know those competition performances were always quite warm um and yeah I I did really well I think uh from memory I just remember getting that first laugh you know like 12 seconds into the set and just being like oh how do I inject that into my veins for the rest of my life you know it felt so great
0: I found it so interesting because like obviously just listen to the story as it goes along and how you're saying you are when you're growing up and like even just waiting to talk or being shy or not wanting to do show and tell or and thing mm. it sounded like it was all building to go away to the other side of the world and that's where you get to try it but it's actually coming right back yeah, home yeah. and then you're saying and bringing friends as well mm. isn't so that interesting it's, it, yeah it's, it's, it's a very different like you probably came back a bit different or something.
1: yeah well you would hope so after six years i think also like many comics uh, that i've heard you know talk about their first shows as well i'd kind of semi-recently had a breakup and it was like my first kind of adult one you know um I remember having a little bit of a sense of like a sort of uh a bucket list kind of you know okay well I've always wanted to do this so what have I got to lose now kind of thing but also a bit of like a I'll fucking show you I'm gonna go and be a stand-up comedian and I'm gonna you know uh it's kind of follow my dreams and that sort of thing. So there was a little bit of um, like post-breakup kind of, you know, gumption behind it as well, a bit of boldness that I probably wouldn't otherwise have had. Um, so that's quite interesting to consider as well. So I got through the first heat and then you get to like a quarter final. got through that, get to a semifinal, got through that, get to a state final. So my fifth ever show was at His Majesty's Theatre in Perth to 13,000 people doing five minutes on this competition lineup. Yeah. Did I say 13,000? Sorry, I mean 1,300. No theatre in Perth is that big.
0: 1,300 for your fifth gig is... <laughs> is it, like, it doesn't sound that big when you say 13,000, but it's still pretty fucking big.
1: Yeah, so that was really exciting. And then what I was doing at that point was pushing my flight to London back with every round of this competition because I was like, well, I can't leave now, you know. Um, And then I had this flight booked on the assumption that I would not get through the state final for like 6 a.m. the next morning and I realised I've set this story up in a way that it sounds like I did get through and I had to cancel that flight but I didn't get through and I got on that flight um, and got back to the UK. But it just – from that point I kind of just landed in London and went – okay, I guess I do comedy now. Yes, yeah, like <laughs> so how go
0: about comps? I'm a very different
1: person. Yeah, I, yeah it I, was wild and it was sort of like, okay, well, what do I do next? So I then entered So You Think You're Funny, got through those comps and then got to Edinburgh for the semifinal for that. And then I did. There were like a, a one called Golden Jesters, which was another competition. Basically, just did did as many comps as you know I could find.
0: Well, I guess yeah. If your if your first gig is a competition, and then it provides you with five gigs, yeah, it takes out a lot of the like because I, I, I think people could get scared and back off or what. Like no, here you did this. You're being told go here, go do that. Truly,
1: yeah. And I think what I don't have regrets about that because it was a good kind of comfortable way to start especially because most of those shows were pretty you know pretty supportive and you know the, the people you'd be working with were you know in the competition mode as well so everyone was you know a bit jittery and all that sort of stuff it was nice and then I got to realize that instead of going straight from that to uh, live at the Apollo I was going to have to cut my teeth on a brutal open mic circuit in London for many years um which I did gladly had a great time and then you know the natural kind of progression then you start getting booked for middles and opens and getting into clubs and stuff and then in 2018 I got uh, management and um yeah from from that point it's sort of it's been a pretty traditional kind of trajectory up the ladder I suppose with those kind of things.
0: I've done I spent a year in London and have done some of the some very nice, some very friendly, but some of the most god-awful open mics. Mm. So what was, just as a quick little sidetrack, what was the the biggest bill you've ever been on?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think there was one where there was 28... Oh, do you know what? I was about to answer that question incorrectly. I was thought you were asking like the biggest names oh, kind of no, bill I've ever been on. Peep, like, which was so a really hard thing peep. to remember. And I'm like, how do you, who's bigger than who? Um, yeah, shit. 28. 28. Mate, that is, that's a marathon.
0: And it was like, it was, see, it was so weird because like, because I'd been gigging here first and then went over there, like you had a bit of experience and then I'd go, oh yeah, you're going on last. It's was like, oh, you know. It just you, think, oh, great, I'm going on last. No, it just means you're going on twenty eighth. Yeah, of the same exactly. show that we're all on. <laughs> yeah, and you're sitting through all of them.
1: You may not call this a headline spot. No, not yeah, at all. it's um. I think I mean I don't think I can trump twenty eight. That is absurd. And then you know if they if they don't run a tight ship, then you know people run over and all of those sort of things. So the night I imagine probably ends ends up going for close to three hours. I think I used to do, well, when I was, you know, early days doing those kind of shows, it was, um, yeah, you'd you'd have at least 15 on. It was crazy. Yeah, at least 15. Thankfully, that
0: never happens here.
1: And bringers as well. Remember, you'd have to take a friend, some poor, unassuming friend that probably is no longer your friend.
0: I had never heard of bringers, they don't exist here. And only, I'd moved a month after two lads who I knew from here. Mm. One I I was closer with than the other, but one guy was like, oh, you're here now, I can't make a spot, do my spot tonight. I was like, mm. yeah, sound And only because it was near my friend did he come for a pint. Mm. And then at the door, they're like, oh, who's your bringer? I'm like, I don't know what that means. Yeah. And then thankfully, he was there and I did the gig. Was like, It was my first and last bringer. I'm like, I'll never do yeah, that yeah. again. Yeah, yeah.
1: And they honestly will the turn you away. Though. They will literally turn you away if you haven't brought someone. I've
0: seen fantastic people on Facebook like, post <sighs> and asking, oh, I'll buy you pints and they'll come to your gig. Exactly. I'm just like But it's just because it's what they... It's the know what to do. That's
1: it. It's sort of. I mean, culture oh. feels like too generous a word, but it's the you know the kind of open mic culture is. um you know, or sometimes you, your bringer would bail on the afternoon of the show or you'd come off this off the uh, tube and your phone would ping and it would be, you know, your bringer bailing, rightly so, because they didn't want to have a shit night. But <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Two
0: pints isn't worth yeah. it.
1: and then you get to the pub and you go, oh, do I have it in me to ask a stranger to come in to this show so gotcha. I can get five minutes of stage time? It's like, it's so... Funny to think about now, but like that was life. Like that's what I did yeah. for years, you know. And you think, oh, dude, where did, where, where, like, where were my reserves to keep going back and doing those shows? I like, it's how disheartening and how like frustrating. And then you'd do the gig and you'd dine your ass, and you know, I, you know, you'd commute two hours home and just be like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? And then, you know, you'd get a 10 somewhere and you'd go, it is worth it, you know. I'm <laughs> paid, of course, but I it's worth it. I can stay there for slightly longer. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, we're, we're going mad off the track here. We'll go back and just uh, we'll talk uh, about that first time mm, on stage. Mm-hmm. So you have about a week, you say, to write, five minutes. Yeah. You're practicing it loads. Mm-hmm. Because, like, you're watching so much and you've been going to shows, how, like, so are you just writing what you've seen or do you have your own ideas that are formulated as you've been, like, how, what's the writing process like at so, first time?
1: I feel like, I don't know if it's, you know, as much of a, an old kind of adage as it is in my head, but I've sort of built it up to be. So, I feel like they either say you're a writer or a performer, mm. especially in comedy. Um, so, for me, if I had to classify myself, it's absolutely a writer. Um, and what I guess I just had been doing for years at that point, whether it was, you know, while I was in radio or, you know, doing magazine stuff or whatever, I just kept notebooks, notebooks and, you know, post-its and, you know, lots of, you know, kind of scribbles of just various, I guess, funny ideas with no intention of doing stand-up. Yeah, absolutely, but with no intention of doing stand-up, just like, oh, this could make like a funny article or, you know, I could post this as a facebook status mm. or like those sort of things that you know so it was all done with um not with performance in mind at all
0: but i guess so it wasn't too far and then to come up with ideas cause yeah i was
1: sort this. of like i guess subconsciously maybe even on some kind of level doing making those little notes uh f- over the course of many years
0: <laughs> your first gig you're like i have an hour of material <laughs>
1: exactly and i'm so sorry um <laughs> so I th- what i just did was call on that i guess and, and i just remember kind of pulling all those things out because the beauty of it um you know when you're jotting ideas and stuff down i guess i was doing it without realizing what it would all go toward but i knew it was important and so i always travelled with those notes and it was like might have been like a plastic slip full of you know torn off bits of of course cuz you're newspaper in the world now exactly yeah i'm always in and out of a suitcase so i always always had all those little kind of clippings you could say it wasn't even in one book it was just like literal shreds of paper and I always traveled with them, so I had them with me when I was home and I just kind of spread them all out on my bedroom floor and just poured over them and went, okay, well, that one makes sense, that one doesn't, that one's got something in it, I think, maybe, that one, you know. So I just sort of cherry-picked through those ideas and then kind of wrote what was hopefully a semi-cohesive set, you know, with um, links and things like that. And, um, and yeah, kind of went from there then just learned it And, um, yeah. And you said
0: you brought people as well.
1: I think – I can't remember who was at my first show. I think my friend Annie came and she was awesome. She's sort of, you know, one of the the artsier people I suppose I'd had a a bit of a creative connection with at home because, you know, I don't know, not to shit on small towns, but I feel like when you're, you know, a quiet, artsy kind of kid and everyone else is sort of jocks, I suppose, for want of a better term, It was hard to find those kind of connections um, where you would, you know, have a bit more of a kind of intellectual connection, you know, that sort of thing. So, I remember thinking Annie's a really safe bet for me at this show. So, it was really awesome to have that.
0: So, a bit of a a boost and
1: support. A bit of a boost, yeah. And also that sort of thing like, you know, if I'm going to absolutely eat shit here, then, you know, I've got like a safe, friendly, warm person who's going to go, oh, well, you know, whereas... I think sometimes – I don't know if you've had this where, you know, someone who doesn't – look, gross air quotes here, but when someone doesn't get it and they might come and see you perform and you just sort of want to explain yourself and you want to quantify things for them and you want to handhold and you want to be like, look, you know, you don't really get it. You know, that's the thing. You don't want to patronise someone. This is sort of like someone who gets it and someone who doesn't quite get it. So for me, I was like, do you know what? Whatever this is, I'm pretty sure like Annie gets it, so Annie's gonna come to this show. So that was it was good, it was really good, and she was awesome. So it was really lovely to have her there.
0: What are your memories of being on stage? Then you talked about getting that first laugh early on, and like really I
1: remember it being so bright, like unbelievably bright, so bright that you'd never realize when you're in an audience that those lights are that bright. Um, and I remember it going so fast so fast and just not being present in my body whatsoever. It was very, um, okay, tick that joke off, tick that joke off, tick that joke off. In my head it was like a checklist of yeah. bits, you know. Um, and it wasn't present in my body or my brain at all. Which is something that I will not lie to you, eight years in, I'm still trying to unlearn that because I I'm still very checklisty with with my work. Um and I also didn't touch the mic, didn't take it out the stand, didn't take the mic out the stand for a good 18 months into my performance career, shall we say. Um, I just would always walk out and just pray that it was at the right height.
0: Yeah, I'd rather in. Literally.
1: Not even on my, like, not even just on the first show, but I would walk out and just be like, okay, say your prayers. Let's hope I don't have to fucking touch this thing. Because I just had this, I was so focused on what I was going to say that I felt like I couldn't coordinate having to adjust a microphone mm. as well. Like if I did something other than focus on what the jokes were, the jokes would disappear right. from my brain which is such a bizarre way to overthink something but I was like I you know and then as I started to get into it a bit more and probably in my second year of performing and stuff I'd actually write in things like take two steps to the right you know or lift your arm up when you're talking about this bit it was just like action to me just came so unnaturally oh
0: there's a guy a good friend of mine we started together and he would write walk onto the stage at the
1: top of a set list isn't that interesting yeah. Just in case he forgot. <laughs> I, lo- I mean, look, I appreciate that so hard. Like, that speaks to me. That really speaks to me because you sort of just go, it's a bit of like a duh kind of thing. But, you know, if you, I, I just found that I would just be like rooted to the floor, mm. you know. And even if, you know, say you've got an MC who, you know wasn't a particularly professional MC. which at open mic nights of course they're not you know they might have left the mic you know off to the off to the center or god forbid they um, hand it to you oh my god they just literally piff it across the stage to you as they're coming on i've definitely had that or where they've like put the put the mic in the stand and it hasn't happened properly and it sort of does that thing where it droops out and you just sort of go, oh, I can't possibly do anything else <laughs> other than recite my little five minutes. How am I going to deal with this, you know?
0: But obviously, yeah, you got through, so it went well. So, like, the focusing on the jokes at that early stage
1: mm. probably,
0: you know, it allowed you to develop then in your own time.
1: I think so. I think I I probably didn't qu- – well, I certainly hadn't cracked the art of joke writing, but I knew, I knew the process. I knew it was a setup. I knew it was a punch. I knew the difference between – you know, a long-winded, you know, cute or charming anecdote um, that had no punchlines. Whereas I feel like um, a lot of people that were in that competition and who I was then in other competitions with, someone would go on and just do like a five-minute story that, you know, maybe someone in their life had gone, oh, this would be really funny for you, comedy competition. And they go, okay, cool. Um, So I was really acutely aware of the difference between that and what a joke consisted of um, and, you know, and, and whether or not it had something to make it work or whatever. I'll tell you this, this is what I remember very vividly about that first show. Arriving to that pub where the heat was really early and sitting in the bar, like which was, you know, next to the venue or whatever, separate kind of room, and uh, there was a guy who was sitting on a, ta- a couple of tables away from me and he had pages and pages and pages of like lined yellow notepaper and he had a pen and he was just scribbling for like all hell on these pages and he sort of caught me like you know side-eyeing and having a little look at what he was doing and he went oh you on the show later and I went oh yeah you know first gig and I'm like really bricking it and all that sort of stuff." And. He was like just so forthcoming with all of this uh, information and wisdom and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, oh, you know, what you've got to do is this and you just got to think about it like this. And I was just like just listening to him like he was this oracle of comedy information kind of thing because the way that he was like carrying himself in this conversation, I was just sitting there nodding really wide-eyed. And we got – I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to come out like after my spot and watch this guy because he knows exactly what he's doing. And, uh, you know, he's so wise. And then uh, he was in the second half. I came out. I sat next to Annie and I'm like, oh, that's the guy I talked to in the bar earlier. You know, he seems like he really knows what he's doing. And I shit you not, he got to the mic, The music cut out, and he went, so the thing about black lesbians is, and I just don't remember the rest <laughs> because I think I passed out. I was just like, this is this was my oracle guy like what is he doing well, that's I thought, where the
0: confidence it, for the advice came from then isn't it like this
1: is literally Jesus. It. this is literally it. and I was like oh my god if I can ever wear confidence like that in my entire life like I could trick so many people it was crazy I just felt so misled <laughs> but it was very funny it was good lesson in um dick swinging basically yeah
0: and um, we'll, we'll wrap up then there's like two more questions do you mm. remember any of the jokes you told that night
1: I don't remember the way they went, but I do remember that I used to have a joke about, and I'm sure this would have been in that set, about how I can't even quite remember the way that it went. It was sort of a bit about and a a sort of a very uh, women-only, women-identifying-only bit where um, it was about how you get out of the bath and your vagina retains some of the bath water which you've nodded politely but I don't think is a, an experience that, that's, a, that's the first time I've ever hit thought about that. <laughs> So it was probably one of those things that I was like this is universal right this is going to get all <laughs> the ladies going yeah that happens to me and I think everyone was like you need to go to the doctor. Um, I can't even
0: relate to the bath, but never mind. <laughs> I need to more.
1: There's Yeah, I remember that sort of bit being like, you know, the whole concept is that you've had this really lovely relaxing bath and I set it up like that and then, you know, like three hours later you literally like go to do something and you're like, oh, I, I'm shedding bath water right now, um, which wasn't the line at all, but it was something along the lines of that. I remember there being a sort of – that was one of the lengthier bits in the in the set, if you could even call it a fucking set. Was that uh, you know, hey ladies? You know when your vagina retains heaps of bathwater, and funnily enough, it did land as a bit. I don't know if they were just going, oh, this is a bit rude and shocking for a new act, uh, because so many of us try and be like edge lords right at the beginning, but or whether it was something that that people went, oh yeah, that happens to me, um, but I didn't do the bit long enough to to obviously discern that. I think I did it for the rest of that competition, and then kind of went, I need to not have this in my set anymore (laughs) because what the hell
0: you have everything that's followed since then (laughs) is thanks to that
1: isn't that so funny to think of isn't that so funny to think of i mean i obviously quit having baths at the same time as i quit doing that bit so yeah stopped my bath comedy from then on (laughs) in i think how funny
0: and then finally if you today now could go back there You've just gotten the advice from your man. We don't know where he's going to go with it yet, but if you today could go and follow his advice and say something,
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what do you think
0: you'd you'd say if you had a minute with yourself?
1: Isn't that uh, such a philosophical question that I probably, after four days at a festival, don't have the brain cells to answer? (laughs) See, it's,
0: it's just me trying to make the guests ended on a nice note without (laughs) me having to actually do or say anything
1: that wraps it up at all i mean i like your style i also like your transparency that's good uh okay so probably um i'm pretty tend to be okay at this it's something that i've learned but it's to sort of get a bit of healthy tunnel vision and and block out what other people are doing rather than you know trying to switch lanes a bit and and be other people you know sometimes when you you're a big fan of someone and you might try and adopt that style sure. a little bit or be a bit too heavily influenced um or even just sort of jealous you know i think jealousy is a really big thing that i've had to kind of combat you know you look at it takes a long time to get over those it years. does you look at some amazing huge well-deserved things that your peers are doing and you think oh we used to do those shitty 28 person open mics together and like what have i done that has meant that I don't have that and have I made the wrong decisions and all of those, you know, kind of wobbles, I think um, I would uh, just sort of iron out early on and and know that, you know, it doesn't doesn't matter as long as you just keep doing what you're doing, you know.
0: And then we let that pause and I go, oh, what a perfect way to end <laughs> the chat. Thank you for chatting about your first gig.
1: Thank you so much for having me Um, and, you know, I might retire after this. What do you reckon?
0: Well, look, you know, Go back to
1: have baths. Yeah, I reckon so. I reckon so.
0: And there we go. Another episode in the books. Are you as still confused and I don't know. I don't even know what the word is. Retaining water. In the bath in your thing magic that's i don't I, like i can't even understand how that happens like you know because obviously i don't know what one looks like so i don't know where it retains water but it does baffle me and uh, to this day i'm still a bit stunned by it but i hope you enjoyed a lot more than that anecdote and enjoyed the whole episode. Uh, big thanks to Brody Stuck for joining me. As I said at the top, I'm going to keep this short as the interview was a longer one and the intro was a longer one. So, plugs and promotions at my first gig pod on social media. Go follow, go tell me you enjoyed the episode. Tag Brody, say, Hey Brody, your episode was great. Put a story up going, Woo, good episode. Yeehaw. Uh, or if you want to get these episodes ad-free, early and extended. And with bonus episodes with the stars of the Irish comedy scene starting this week, then go to patreon.com forward slash pod. If you want to hear more from me, go to at Dwayne Dugan on Twitter and Instagram. And other than that, I hope you have a lovely time. And if you're coming back next week, then we are going to... Let me look up and down the list here. We are going to go and listen to my first gig with... Humphreys. Kai Humphreys, this was recorded uh, late before the pandemic as well. Eventually, these will all be new interviews. See, the weird thing is I go back and edit these and I'm like, no memory of asking any of these questions, even though they all remain the same. So Kai Humphreys, yes, Kai, you might know Kai Humphreys as um, one half of the Sloss and Humphreys duo. Uh, If you see Daniel Sloss performing anywhere, Kai is usually alongside him. And Kai is a fantastic comedian. Very funny. Geordie boy. Is he a Geordie boy? See, I'm never sure if it's like Geordie or Newcastle or Sundland or Middlesbrough or if Geordie is the lot. I don't know. Probably this is the equivalent of when people call Irish people Brits. So if you hate me, I deserve it. Uh, Kai's great. Anyway, he was over performing the weekend at the laughter lounge and recorded this chat. And you can hear it next week on my first gig. But until then, guys, hope you had a nice time. Hope you had a lovely, lovely week. Let's all go celebrate and party. Woohoo, guys. Woohoo. Goodbye for my first gig. I've been Dwayne Dugan. I'll see you next week. It's the My First
1: Gig Podcast One. You've been listening to My First Gig with Dwayne Dugan on ACAST. Follow online at My First Gig Pod or at Dwayne Dugan. For classic episodes, ad free, early access, and more, head to myfirstgigpod.com. This is My First Gig with Dwayne Dugan, powered by ACAST. Enjoy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince.